the opening music to Run Silent, Run Deep, released in 1958 and directed by Robert Wise, which is why we're reviewing it as part of our Robert Wise Marathon. Uh, and you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at www.classicmoviereviews.net. And in iTunes and Apple Podcasts, just search for Classic Movie Reviews. And on Facebook, you can find us if you search for ClassicMovieReviews.net, all spelled out as one long word. And I'm Matt Johnson, coming to you from North Bend, where we have sun and spring-like weather today. And uh, I'm Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, where we have wonderful weather today, too. <clears throat> Welcoming everybody back to uh, Classic Movie Reviews. And Run Silent, Run Deep, which is one of many submarine movies that were made between 1955 and 1960. For some reason, they were very popular at that time. I have a whole list of them here. And all of them are good, but I think this is the best of the crew, probably because of the director. Yeah, probably. And I, I kind of thought as I was watching it that it, it the modern equivalent of this would be sort of like a space battle movie where, you know, there's kind of like a space opera, space battle movie. I, I thought that would be similar to this. Maybe there's more of those on TV than in the movies these days, but had a lot of similarities to like a sci-fi space adventure. Oh, but most definitely. And a submarine movie that came along in the 80s that we won't be reviewing is, a, I think it's a German film, Das Boot. Oh, yeah. From 1981. Very much a uh, an, an excellent, uh, well-done film. Some uh, just uh, since I did this list, I have to. I'm I'm forced to give you four of the submarine movies. I have a thing related to a list too. So well, from 1957, there's the Enemy Below, with uh, Robert Mitchum and Kurt Jurgens. From 1957 again, the uh, Hellcats of the Navy with Ronald Reagan and Nancy Davis. That may have been his last movie. I can't remember. The 1958 Torpedo Run with Glenn Ford and Ernest Borgnine. And finally, from 1959, Up Periscope with James Garner and Edmund O'Brien. And, and I remember they were, they, they were kind of all coming out in the same time frame. I, I'm not quite sure the, the reason for that. Yeah, they're probably just a popular genre of film at the time. Yeah, something, maybe one or two of them did really well, and so they said, well, let's do some more. Yeah. It was a relief for, it was a relief for something where it wasn't a Western because there were so many Westerns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and World War II movies were popular at the time in general, I think. Yeah, very much so. The Longest Day was, was kind of the culmination of that. So this is, the, this is our American Film Institute reference for the podcast. It's included among the American Film Institute's 1998 list of the 400 movies nominated for the top 100 greatest American movies. Oh, but it didn't make the final 100. I guess not. It was nominated to be on the top list. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about the films that we reviewed uh, of Robert Weiss, and he, he often would be interviewed, usually on Turner Classic Movies or something like that, and he seemed like the consummate professional. He could do anything and make it work. This film, all the detail, the models in it and all of that are just really well done for 60 years ago. 
It felt pretty authentic, and I read that they had borrowed about a half a million dollars worth of actual submarine equipment to put into the set so that they could make it look authentic. And I read in addition to that, he had some naval uh, people that had been in uh, retirees that had been in submarine work and duty, and they were with the cast for until uh, Mr. Weiss was satisfied that the cast really acted like they knew what was going on in a submarine. Yeah, they all trained to actually be like working on a submarine. That's cool. Uh, the one thing that I uh, agreed with on my research here was that the two main characters played by Clark Gable as Commander Rich Richardson and Burt Lancaster as Lieutenant Jim Bledsoe were both a little bit too old for their respective positions because the story is based on an actual event and the captain of that submarine was only 23 years old. And most of the captains of the submarines were in their 20s. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Clark Gable at that time would have been 57 and Burt Lancaster uh, in his early 40s. Yeah. Gable looked uh, like an older guy, but it seemed okay to me because he was so um, commanding (laughs) in the role. He was. He was was good. I. I noticed when I first started watching the movie that he kind of had a shake to him, like his head would just shake a little bit. And, and I wondered if that was something other than, you know, part of his character. But it turns out that there's some thought that maybe he had Parkinson's, but also oh. he smoked four packs of cigarettes a day and was an alcoholic. So it may have just been that as well. Four packages of cigarettes a day? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. He died early. He was 60 years old when he died. Yeah, and and, this, and that led me to think, well, did people actually smoke on submarines in World War II? And it turns out that they did, but only when they were on the surface. And they spent most of their time on the surface because the batteries in those submarines didn't last that long, and they needed to be recharged using the diesel engines. And, of course, you couldn't run the diesel engines underwater. So I, I learned, I went down a rabbit hole on World War II submarines. It was pretty interesting. <laughs> I, I, I was wrong. He was 59 when he died, uh, Clark Gable. Yeah, I, I mean, talk about claustrophobic. Being yeah. in that submarine with, I don't know how many crew members there were, but had to be like 50 or so, I would guess. And Robert Weiss did the Andromeda Strain too, correct? Yes, he did. Yeah, I thought about that movie and some of those shots in the in the submarine because it felt had that claustrophobic feel to it. Um. Clark Gable, what an act. I had no idea that he smoked that much, so wow. Uh, he he had been in so many excellent movies and, and won an Academy Award in 1934 for It Happened One Night, which was my mom and dad's, one of their favorite movies. If you watch it now, it's it's just, it's kind of uh, out of date. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't hold up too well, but it's still okay. And then he did Gone with the Wind, 1939, and... Uh, one of my favorites that you don't see too often is The Tall Men from 1955. It's a cattle movie with West, a Western flavor. Hmm. And, he, and, uh, and a movie that's really interesting is The Misfits, which was his last film with uh, Marilyn Monroe, Eli Wallach, Montgomery Clift, and directed by John Huston. Directed by John Huston. Oh, that sounds good. Quite a movie, yeah. Anyway, he was really an excellent actor. And then, of course, Burt Lancaster also won an Academy Award. Um, I just for I, oh Elmer Gantry, he was he won an, an Academy Award for Elmer Gantry in 1960. 
But one of his movies that I really like, I, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm into Westerns, is from 1971, The Lawman. Sometime when you have a couple hours, check it out. He, he plays the most obsessive lawman I've ever seen. <laughs> it's a Western? It's a Western, yeah, set in like the, 19, uh, the 1880s or so. Oh, okay. He's going to get he's going he's going to get the people that did the bad deeds no matter what. Uh, I like those kind of movies. I'll have to check that out. To say it's intense is is an understatement. Yeah, he was good in the movie. They both were really good in the movie. I thought they played their characters well. Um one thing that we were talking about before we started was that um the original script for this movie had Lieutenant Jim Bledsoe forcefully taking command near the end uh, and Clark Gable did not like that uh, script because he said that that goes against his uh, career of over 20 plus years of building these characters and that he refused to film the movie that way so he, he didn't show up for work for a couple of days and they decided to rewrite it so that he felt he falls ill from that head injury and the, he has to give command over to Lieutenant Lieutenant Jim Bledsoe. I read that same thing, yeah. Uh, it shows the uh, <clears throat> magnitude of the power he had in Hollywood in the 1950s and before to be able to do that. And also this uh, idea that, you know, he had this brand. We were talking about like a brand of, of yes. the type of character that he would play and that the actor and the characters in some respects kind of blend together. I know I read about John Wayne uh, had some of the same. He turned down a couple of roles because he didn't want to play that particular type of character. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess when you've won an Academy Award and been in the business forever, it's okay to do. Uh, it got pretty good reviews, though, as I, as I was reading about it. <clears throat> Maybe I should give you a little background on the film itself, if my voice holds up here. Yeah. Of course, Robert Weiss was the director, and it was uh, produced by uh, a company that Lancaster was a part of and had uh, several actors that were very popular from the day, Jack Warden and others. And it was released in uh, March, I think, of 1958. It did really well. And it's interesting, all that action takes place in about 90 minutes of film from beginning to end. They didn't waste any footage. That's for sure. And the the miniature work was really well done. I thought that it didn't detract from the film at all. Yeah, it's some of the best, because I've seen some other films, even later ones, where the miniatures are so obviously apparent that it, it, it takes away from the story. They yeah. would have been... Sometimes I say to myself, why did they put that scene in? They could have done without it. Exactly. Yeah, Whoa. But yeah, this was this was really well done. I, I uh, read that this was also Don Rickles' first film. I know, <laughs> and he's fairly serious. Yeah, I know. I always think of him as a comedic act, actor, but I think we've seen oh, a, yeah. I think we've seen him in another movie where he played more of a serious uh, character. Uh, there was one with Clint Eastwood and Donald Sutherland, a, a World War II movie. He was in that. That may have been one of them. I can't think of the name of it right now, but. Uh, he went on to be very successful with uh, with his comedy act, especially in live shows and Las Vegas shows. He was an X, the man with the X-ray eyes. Remember, he played the carnival guy. 
that wanted to. Oh, that's right. He wanted to capitalize on this. Yeah, yeah, and he I forgot about that. That was also a serious character. Well, uh, the realism in this, uh, I guess, what pulls me into this film is is the uh, story between the two main characters, the captain and the executive officer. And I read where one uh, reviewer said it was sort of like. Moby Dick meets Mutiny on the Bounty. <laughs> That's a good, yeah, I think so <laughs> I like too. And it's, and it's well done. And I think that really holds it together, plus the, the uh, professionalism of Mr. Weiss's direction. That stuff about the bongo straight. I'm ready for action. Passing up the decoy, sir. In position. Heading straight on towards the Akakazi. Stand by to dive. Aye, aye, sir. Range 1800. Akakazi bearing down on us. Bow on. Clear the bridge, dive. Dive. Ready to shoot in 25 seconds, sir. Bearing, mark, fire. Fire one. 24 seconds, sir. Torpedo running hot, straight, and normal. You sunk him again, sir. That makes 200 times you sunk Bongo Pete in uh, 200 days. He only sunk you once. Just once. But it wasn't on a desk. Where do you get all these things, anyway? Mm, tables, desks. Mueller, you're a thief. I'm a collector, sir. Bongo Pete. Let's put him next to his Akakazi destroyer. The unknown factor. The sea dragon of Area 7. There's nothing superhuman about him or the area. Well, it's too bad they'll never give you another chance in that area, Commander. Holy smokes, four submarines sunk in a Bongo Straits, How and many? they keep you behind a desk for a year, just for something they can't even figure out themselves. How many subs? You said four, I think. Yes, sir. The count was three a month ago. Well, it's only scuttlebutt, Commander, but the word's around that the last boat sent out there was lost three days ago. Get these things out of here. Mueller, when's the next sub due in? Two weeks, sir. The Nurka. The skipper was wounded, but... The executive officer's due to take over. He qualified for command? Yes, sir. They'll send her out to seven. I suppose so. Get the chief of staff on the phone. Tell him I'm coming over. You know, I haven't read the book. I don't know if that was a real place or if that was a... Yeah, it was a real place. It was a really dangerous place because it's the narrowest strait between a couple of the Jap Japanese islands. But yeah, it's actually based on a real event. I know the man, that the uh, uh, retired officer that wrote the book, I think had been involved in some of that kind of action. He was a little disappointed with the film because it didn't quite follow the book the way he had thought they were going to make it. And having not written the, read the book, I don't know if that's, I don't know how, what, where that uh, truth is in that. It's certainly an action film, which is what they were after. Yeah, here, here it is. It's the Akakazi... It's an actual Imperial Japanese Navy destroyer, uh, and it was quite old for the time, and it was used for fast troop transport and convoy escort. And in 1940, in November, on November 3rd, 1944, she was escorting the carrier Junyo and light cruiser Kiso toward Brunei in the Philippines. And then the U.S. Navy submarine, USS Pintado, attacked the formation and fired torpedoes at the Junyo, but the Akakazi deliberately intercepted the torpedoes intended for the carrier, 
causing her to blow up and sink with her entire crew of 148 officers and men. Jeez. Oh, my word. And that's from IMDb, one of the trivia uh, items. But, yeah, that's pretty interesting backstory. Maybe that's a part of what draws me to the film, too. It it seems as though it's something that would, would likely have happened, and it may be a capsule of three or four of those kinds of com- combined operations. But uh, our, our, our film starts out with uh, a rather... Uh, an intense and exciting opening within the first, what, five minutes? Clark Gable has a submarine shot out from under him, and they all <laughs> surface, and, and uh, I, we never, I never quite knew how many people survived that torpe- the uh, torpedo attack or the, uh, the attack of the Japanese, but he survives. That, and then they go to the, that was kind of an early type, where they open with the action first. Yeah, and I thought that was an interesting opening because it, it doesn't really open with much music, and then it it has almost a documentary feel to it. And then you see this action, and then the music kicks in with some of the credits. So it, it's more like a modern opening for a film. It is. It, yeah, I thought the same thing. And uh, did, did they ever say how many people survived that? I, I, don't, I don't remember. Either. I don't think so. But we know that he does, but he's been put behind a desk afterwards. Yeah, he was not fit for that job. He'd been there 200 days and was going crazy. <laughs> he was playing these little war games with his secretary or something. Yeah, with these models. Uh, he was a man of action, not a man of desk work. And then and then we get to another scene where uh, he's up in a tree, like trimming this tree. Does he get the new command before we cut to the scene with him? in the tree i think he does yes uh he 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 goes to meet with the admiral and convinces him that he should be the one to go out on the next uh submarine which was coming into port yeah and and he is successful in in taking the command away from burt lancaster yeah and And then they go to the tree yeah and then that sets up the dynamic where burt lancaster's character and clark gable's characters are, are kind of at odds because Jim Bledsoe was going to be the new captain of that submarine. Yeah. And, and what a creative idea to have the the first meeting of the two of them with the Clark Gable being the uh, f- the family guy working on his tree at home. Like yeah. he's retired, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean he does kind of seem retired and I think he's at the a- I mean, you know, he's Oh, and that at, at the age yeah. where he should probably be retired, but he's mm. got this uh nice house right on the water. No in kidding. Ho- in Hawaii there, and I thought, wow, that's a beautiful home. <laughs> I wouldn't and mind I, living there. I, no no kidding. You wonder where that is today. You know, it's probably a 32-story condominium. Oh, my gosh, probably. Right on the water. And I thought I thought that whole interaction between Gable and Lancaster was perfect. It set up the tone for what was going to be happening in the film. And then Gable's wife, in a very, very tender moment says to Lancaster please take care of my husband Commander Richardson that's right I'm Bledsoe Jim Bledsoe well a pleasure oh would you mind uh, throwing me up that insect spray Jim excuse me sir but I didn't come here to spray insects (laughs) well it's a leaves you spray but it doesn't matter what's on your mind request sir I'd like you to ask for another exec oh just like that huh my privilege sir Navy regulations well, I'd have to take you to the board. You went to them before. That's just it. 
I got what I wanted then. Why should I change it? Maybe I can enlighten you. There's a crew that's already accepted me as its captain. They have me decked out as a groom. Now that you're taking my place, I'd rather not go to the wedding. Are we discussing your pride, or are you embarrassed to face them? You'll be facing them yourself in a couple of days. The resentment's going to be twice as great with me on board. Mr. Bledsoe, let me be honest with you. I don't care about their resentment or yours. I wanted a boat, the board gave it to me. That's all there is. The board didn't give you a thing. You went to them, the poor desk commander with a tear in his eye. You told them if you could have me, a qualified commander for a backstop, you could do the job. That was your selling point, wasn't it? Mr. Bledsoe, your request for release is denied. Commander, I'm glad I came over. Sort of get things straightened out. We're going to get along just fine. Don't worry, Jim. I'll take good care of the bride. Anyone for a slug of gin? We're out of a mood. Lieutenant Bledsoe, Laura, my exec. Oh, hello. Thanks, Mrs. Richardson. I'll take a rain check on the drink. You sure? Some other time. Lieutenant, if there isn't another time, good luck. Take good care of my husband. I'll take care, ma'am. Yeah, I thought that was a good a good inclusion of her into that scene because it it softened it a little bit. So you kind of you kind of want Jim Bledsoe to like get behind Commander Richardson, you know. Yeah, because the the commander is on a mission to get that uh, ship that had sunk his submarine. But he doesn't tell anybody that, right? Cuz they even we find out once they get underway that they're under orders to not go to the Bungo Strait. Yeah, I know. And so everybody on the the ship is really tense because they're going to Sector 7, or Section 7, I forget how they call that, but that's where all these submarines have been sunk, I think four in the last, uh, like, six months or something. And so they're like, oh, crap, we're going to that area. That's not good. But all of those sinkings had happened in the Bungo Strait. And so once they find out that they're not going there, they're like relieved and the, the tension on the crew sort of is released and they're all kind of joking around again. And Little do they know that the captain is Captain Ahab from Moby Dick. <laughs> he's out to get that whale. And he's got them doing all these weird drills that they've never done before and they're, they're just constantly drilling on how to fire a torpedo and then sink like really quick. Yeah, um, which I guess none of them had ever done before. Yeah, and it was a. It was kind of comes out later that that's a maneuver that you would only do uh, in desperation. But they're practicing it and over and over again. Just a, a couple of footnotes from earlier. It, a, a director like Robert Weiss would make that first meeting where Gable's in the tree and Lancaster's very, very businesslike, and then the one before that where Lancaster learns from uh, one of the higher level uh, officers that he's not going to have command. And it's set up by, they, they dance around it for a while. The guy has milk. And I just thought, that's the, that's the beauty of a director like Weiss. He could, he could make those scenes so interesting and foreshadowing what's coming down the road. That's a real gift. Yeah, it's, it's little touches like the, the guy who's coming to tell him the bad news, wanting to have a glass of milk. You know, that's... It doesn't really add to the story necessarily, but it definitely adds to the character. And it, 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 it's sort of there to... 
because he's stalling, right? He's stalling. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to deliver this bad news to. Yeah, him. talk about a, a a bad job to have to do that. And Lancaster, the way he reacted was perfect. You could tell he was ready to scream. He wanted that job. Oh, somewhere. he was so angry, and he's like, "Well, this isn't the only ship. Like, he's gonna go get, be the yeah. captain of some other ship. Like, screw this." Well, anyway, I kind of I kind of took us back to that because there's scenes like that throughout the film that I attribute to the. Uh, the exceptional ability of of Robert Weiss, which makes his film so appealing to me. Well, one thing I just thought about that setup with uh, Clark Gable in the tree is that it puts him at a higher level, like visually. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yep. He's in charge, and you don't even have to say anything. It's just sort of like, oh, he's, he's up there, and uh, Lieutenant Jim Bledsoe's down here, and Clark Gable wasn't a tall person. I think that maybe Burt Lancaster was taller than him. So if they were standing right next to each other, it wouldn't have had the same impact. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that one either. But again, kudos to uh, the director. Yeah. So I took us off our plot here. So they're doing all these drills, and and then they have their first uh, encounter with the Japanese, and it's, it's an odd encounter because they they're not doing the things that they would normally do like they they don't fire on the destroyer they fire on the the um carrier like the troop carrier uh that's behind it and they blow that ship up and then they do this maneuver where the the destroyer's coming directly at them and all these drills that they've been doing now it's obvious it becomes obvious why they were doing those drills destroyer's angle at the bow now zero bearing Bearing 045. He's heading right at us. Keep the sound on him, Cullen. We'll have orders to go deep in a second. Yes, sir. If you've had any questions about the drills, I think you'll have them answered now. We're taking on the Movo. Right standard rudder. Come right to course 045. Right standard rudder, sir. Coming right to 045. Very well. Open outer doors on tubes 3 and 4. Open outer doors on tubes 3 and 4. At range one five double O will crash dive. At fifty feet we'll give her two fish. Down the throat. It's a bow shot. Range eighteen hundred. Four feet. 
Steady on course, Captain. Stand by on tube three. Stand by three. Level up at 50, Captain. Fire three. Fire three. Three fired, son. Fire four. Fire four. Four fired, sir. Stand by to take her down fast. Stand by to take her down fast. Aye, sir. Standing by. Just given a Jap tin can the deep six with a bow shot in 32 seconds. Gentlemen, I think this boat is ready for anything. Let's keep it that way. Drills, no more than usual tomorrow. Mr. Bledsoe. Yes, sir. Take the car and get us back on our base course. Aye, right, sir. Good. Oh, yay, they're all celebrating. They're like, see, see, this is why we've been doing all these drills. And then, and then kind of everybody gets behind Commander Rich Richardson at that point. Although there was one guy that was skeptical. I, I don't know if he was the engineer on the boat or what, but he comes to Lancaster and says, you know, this is being done because we're going to be doing something really dangerous down the road. Yeah, he kind of sees that through scene? it. Yeah, that was a really good <clears throat> scene, yeah. I, I think forget that the was, actor's uh, name. Was that Jack Warden that came in? No, not Jack Warden. Um, you know, I don't. I don't remember the actor's name, but... Throughout the film, he plays kind of the skeptic. He moves the story along a bit, but he's also yeah. uh, somebody that kind of sees other other parts of, of what's going on. The other thing that made that sinking um, b- before it happened, they passed up attacking a submarine. Right, 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 right. And right. that made everybody upset because they thought, what are we just training to be? To be uh, weak-willed uh, doers of of his do you know, of his of, of drills, his we're, we're just we're yeah. just drillers, but we're not doers. Yeah, yeah that was an so, intense scene. And I think that also comes up later about how they're trying to save their torpedoes and why are we why are we trying to save our torpedoes? You know what's go what's really going on here? Yeah, I'm I'm while we're visiting, I'm going to see if I can find the name of that actor because. His role is is not large, but he has he comes in kind of in key points two or three times to point out that things aren't as they seem. I think he might be the chief petty officer, and his name is Joe Moross. I think he's chief petty officer Kohler. Okay. I think that's who that I think that's that part. There's another character that. Uh throughout the whole film is constantly kind of bad mouthing commander Richardson and, and telling him their, his opinion and Burt Lancaster's character a couple of times has, has to discipline him. And at one point, Jack Warden's character says, I just can't find the words. And he punches them. Yeah. The guy, the other actor was Brad Dexter. <laughs> oh, he okay. played a lot of parts. He was in the magnificent seven. Oh, he was okay. one of the heroes in that. 
He looked familiar, but I couldn't place him. He was one of those actors that I've seen a bunch of times, but not like super well known. Yeah, he really got what he he got his comeuppance with Jack Warden. Yeah, so we've got these two main characters who are butting heads, and then we have these supporting characters who are taking other points of view within the film, and they're kind of expressing the questions that we would have as an audience. I think that's their role to say, well, what about this? Or this doesn't make sense. The other thing I noticed about all the characters, whether they had a limited part or a large part, they all seemed uh, pretty realistic to me. There wasn't anyone that seemed overly cartoonish or one-dimensional. Which yeah, I, I, I would agree I liked. with that. Yeah. I liked so many films, there's always one or two people. You're, I'm like, boy, I don't know if I if I really buy the. I thought I thought Don Rickles' character was a little bit like that, but then I. He was. Thought, he was a yeah. He was the closest to that. I thought of that too. Yeah, but I thought maybe that's intentional because he's he's just sort of that loud mouth kind of guy that. Hey, come here, you guys. Listen to this. Dear Commander, Japanese Imperial Fleet, be it hereby known that on July 31st, 1943. The USS Nurka, under the command of Captain P.J. Richardson, sunk a Japanese destroyer. <laughs> One down, 20 fish to go. Signed, Kraut Mueller. How do you like that, Chief? We've been drilling for a bow shot all the time. Hey, Ruben, you were up there, huh? Right on the pickle, dear friend. That tin can zigs right into us. I tell you, I was shaking. No. What about the old man? What do he do? Calm, you know what I mean? No excitement. He just thought us two fish right down our throat. Just like you'd order ham and eggs. Oh, if we'd have missed, though, we wouldn't have lived long enough to get in there, you said, which I still think we won't live long enough to get out of. Hey, if, if, if. Go back to see his robot, will you? Yeah, he, he kind of borderlined that between cartoonish and realistic, I thought. And then the other character uh, that I enjoyed, uh, Nick Cat- Kravitz. He played uh, Russo. He was the guy that kept dumping the garbage overboard. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that almost got drowned because... Almost got drowned. They he, got the... he goes back to the days when he and Lancaster were uh, doing uh, acrobatic uh, trapeze oh, acts. Oh, right. So I they were lifelong that. friends. Yes. And it was one of the few times that he could have a speaking part because he had such a thick Brooklyn accent. He couldn't, he couldn't speak in some of these... Uh, medieval melodramas that would come along it wouldn't it wouldn't fit, <laughs> it wouldn't fit. <laughs> he, was, he was perfect in that role i liked his character he he sort of provided a little bit of level levity at one point he says oh they were trying to figure out like how the japanese got the names of all the people on the ship and like the commander and stuff and and they figured out it was through the trash like the the ship fishing vessels had picked up the trash and so uh Lieutenant Jim Bledsoe comes up and asks him, well, how do you sink the trash? And he says, well, I put tin cans and old tools or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Whatever, fine. Yeah, and then, and, then, and then he says, what? What did I do now? <laughs> what did I do wrong now? You are listening once again to the voice you call Tokyo Rose. Ed, did you like the music? Yes. I play it tonight for the wives and sweethearts of the submarine Nurka. You'll never see these men again. The Nurka has been sunk. It lies at the bottom of the Bungo Straits. They bought it. They chalked us up. We send you our regrets to the relatives of Captain P.J. Richardson, of Officers James Bledsoe, Gerald Cartwright, Carl Beckman, of Seaman Jesse Warner, Kraut Mueller, Robert Hendricks. How could they... Listen. You'll never see them again. Think about it. Think what your country has done to these men as you listen to the music. Well, they even named us, the officers, the crew. 
How could they possibly know? Welsh. Yes, sir? Were any dispatches, any messages sent after we entered Area 7? No, sir. We cut off all radio transmission. Captain's orders. No information, no transmitting of any kind left this boat in 7. That's right, sir. Yula. Yes. Did you ever sign your name Kraut Mueller? Only on that notice I put up about the Momo destroyer. Russo. Where's Russo? Yes, sir. Well, the trash you put in the garbage sacks, how do you weight it? Huh? How do you weight it? Answer me. Well, some tin cans, broken tools, anything I can find that'll help weight the sacks down, Does sir. it sink? I think so, sir. You think so? Well, I can't say for certain, Mr. Bledsoe. Did you dump any sacks off the bungo streets? Yes, sir. What have I done now? He was on the screen for what, at the most, like three, four minutes? But he just, he did such a great job. memorable, though, yeah. So back to the plot, they've sunk that destroyer, and they're all pretty elated. But again, the chief petty officer is skeptical. And then it comes out that, yeah, actually they are going to the Bungo Straits and they are going to try to sink this destroyer. And everybody's like, ah, see, we knew, we knew it. <laughs> and boy, the tension between Gable and Lancaster really ratchets up several degrees, several notches. I think because... I sent you a text at the 50-minute mark of the film saying, this is a really well-done battle scene. That was the one where yeah. they, it's right around 50 minutes in the movie, and it's really well done. And then I would say that the the last battle scene uh, is also really well done. It's very engaging. Very engaging and very uh, realistic. I, whenever they had those, like, where the ship was sunk and it just blew apart. I'm yeah. Like, How'd they do that? I, I mean, it looked really... Or the so authentic the depth charges. I thought the way they did the depth charges yeah. was, was really well done, and I and I I kept wondering what that would feel like to be inside this this tube of metal, and then having these explosions oh. going off just you know a dozen twenty you know feet away from you with no um, escape. Yeah. So let's see. I think they they come up in the Bungo Straits, and it's it's like they're already. They kind of already know that they're there, and, and the Air Force is there attacking them, and the ships are attacking them, and they just barely escape. Uh, and I think the forward compartment, the one of the hatches gets blown off, and all this water is rushing in, and some straps come off of the torpedoes. And, and oh, like, that scene where that torpedo fell on that one, yeah, one crew member. That was. That was tough. That was brutal. It, it was very well done, but I mean, oh my god! And I think I they made you feel—it made you feel even worse for that guy because he—he seems so naive. Remember, he was the guy that yeah. my birthday was the seventh, and I—that's why I chose section seven. In that in, in they had that betting pool at the beginning about where which section they were going to, and he chose seven. And everybody's like, "Why would you choose seven? That's the Bungo Straits." And I think it was his first tour of duty. Yeah, so you felt even worse for that guy because it's like, oh man. Poor and they guy. keep they keep getting attacked with with all kinds of depth charges and everything else. And they, f I forget who it is that finally decides. You know, we've got to look. We got to make it look like we're 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 done. I think it was both Lieutenant 
Bledsoe and Commander Richardson, Lieutenant Bledsoe is like, well, let's make sure, like, let's do an oil slick and then also put all of our spare blankets and clothes and stuff out the chute. And then Commander Richardson says, and the three dead men, too. Yeah, that that whole thing was frightening. I mean, to watch the reaction, so well done. But it made sense. Like, they really want to make it look like the ship got blown up and, you know, these guys are dead, so... I, I was I was trying to put myself in the place of one of the people that had to put a dead body in that torpedo tube and send it out. That that would be uh, uh, there's uh, just a really so difficult. There's a really quick scene of them doing that, and the look on the actors' faces is I think just perfect. It's it's exactly what you just described. <laughs> like uh, yeah. how do how do we even do this? I, I would I would imagine that a part of the pre-production time they had with the submarine people that had actually done that kind of work led to a lot of that realism and 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 expressions on faces and that sort of thing because it yeah. really did look like it was happening and you know i think the film is better because it's in black and white oh yeah it's good it's really well done in black and white yeah so then they are sort of limping along and they get this ro- uh rosy what Tokyo Rose? Oh, Tokyo Rose, yeah. Broadcast and and all of the names of the officers and and some of the uh, crew of the ship are listed out as fallen, you know, in this battle and the the submarine's been destroyed and and Lieutenant Bledsoe's like, how did they how did they get our names? And that's kind of where it comes out that it it was through the trash. But then they decide that okay, now they actually have the upper hand. Like, we could go back to the Bungo Straits and take them on because they think that we've been destroyed. Yeah, and that's where uh, Lancaster had sort of taken over command because uh, during the attack, Commander Richardson had been injured and had a serious concussion. And so Lancaster stepped in and said, I'm taking over the boat. But then there's a kind of an about-face when they when he realizes they have an opportunity to go back and and sink this this uh, sub killer that has taken down four four of their ships, but what made the suspense even better is they start getting these signals on the radio. Yeah, and nobody can figure out what they are. Right, right. That was a good little bit of mystery there. How many times have we seen that in a science fiction movie? Oh man, I've lost count. <laughs> yeah. What is that sound? What is that? Where's that coming from? Just like the Alien movie, the first Alien oh, movie, remember they get that, yes. that stress signal from the planet. Um, but that um, I thought that scene between Lieutenant Bledsoe and Commander Richardson when uh, uh, Lieutenant Bledsoe kind of comes around and says, well, all right, we're going to go back. And Commander Richardson's like, I knew that you would because that's, you know, that's what you do. That's your commander. Yeah. And that was such a, an about face because... A while before that, uh, Gable's character is sort of saying to Lancaster's character, your first command is to retreat. Yeah. He was going to go back because he thought they had been so damaged and they weren't going to be able to survive. Well, and there's a scene in the mess hall where all the guys are like, well, when's... When have you ever heard of a submarine returning to port with all of its, uh, with almost all of its torpedoes still on board? Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, that's not really why they're out there, right? Like, they're out there to fight this battle. And that's another uh, scene where the chief petty officer, I believe that's who it was, kind of steps in to 
give a balance to the whole thing by saying, you know, we're gonna. We, I forget exactly what he says, but he kind of supports the fact that they need to move ahead. They need to move back and do the attack. Yeah. So then we get to the. I thought the editing here was interesting, where they had they would cut from the battle to looking at Commander Richardson, and he was kind of having like these fever dreams or something, and then they would cut back to the battle and. I thought it sort of helped ratchet up the tension a, a bit. Yeah, he he was at one point during that. Uh, I well, they had him on screen. I thought he had died. Yeah, he kind of looked like it. He looked like he was dead. And, and then they dead. they they sink the destroyer, and everybody's celebrating. And then they start to hear that that strange coded message again. And Commander Richardson gets this look on his face like, I know what this is now. I figured it out. And he, he's like practically on his deathbed, right? And he's, but he still gets out of the bed and runs up to the bridge to tell them what he, he's found. And then they show a periscope and who comes from behind it, the submarine commander for the Japanese. That was, that was a well-done scene too because I thought at first, well, that must be the periscope where... Uh, Commander Richardson's looking, but no, it was the commander of the uh, enemy submarine, who I've seen in a lot of movies. I was just glad they actually had people that looked Japanese playing those parts. <laughs> yeah, no, no kidding. I've um, seen a lot of the other. So there was another piece of trivia here that I wanted to call out because it plays into our movie festival here. And that is that that scene with the two submarines uh is replicated in the Wrath of Khan, where the two spaceships are at a standoff. It really and, is. And there was another bit of Star Trek-related trivia here, which is the the older, younger dynamic of the dust-bound older commander taking the reins of what was to be the younger commander's first ship, yet keeping the younger officer on as the exec, was featured prominently in another Robert Wise film some 20 years later, Star Trek The Motion Picture. So I'm now I'm really interested to compare that movie to this movie when we get to that point. I, I've seen that kind of scene in other films too, where the when the, the two submarines are stalking each other and they're both blind. Yeah. There's a scene in the Longest Day where John Wayne is leading a platoon on one side of a hedgerow, and on the other side of the hedgerow is a platoon of Germans, and they pass by each other. But they're not quite sure who they are, so they ah, don't they don't attack. I, mean, I, th I think it happens frequently. It's a great it's a great vehicle to hold your interest, and and it look and it looks so real. Those submarines for models looked really, really good. Maybe you could finish it up because I, as I mentioned, my DVD crapped out right around this point, and I couldn't get I couldn't watch the last like six minutes oh. of the movie. <laughs> so the the Japanese submarine decides that. It's going to go behind one of those uh, decoy ships that, that doesn't have anything in it, but are used to kind of shield the uh, the submarines and destroyers. And uh, Commander Richardson figures out that because that decoy ship is higher in the water, if they set the torpedoes at 16 feet and, and launch two of them, they'll go underneath the cargo ship and hit the submarine. And so we watch that unfold, and sure enough... Underneath the uh, camouflage ship, they go, and they uh, blow the uh, the uh, Japanese submarine up. 
completely. I mean, it's one of those where there's nothing left at all because both submarines hit at almost the same time. Both torpedoes, you mean? I mean, yeah, bo- both torpedoes, yeah. Both submarines, you're right. <laughs> both torpedoes, mixing up terminology there. And that's the end of the uh, enemy. And then it kind of uh, moves to the, to the you see the American submarine above water on the surface and all the crew out on deck and they're having a uh, burial ceremony for Commander Richardson, who died during the uh, the conflict. And it's a very touching scene with Lancaster uh, saying for the whole crew how much he meant to them. And then uh, it shows the submarine going off for their next assignment, I assume. And the music was good. It's It wasn't Bernard Herrmann, though. Oh, darn I, it. I've, I've gotten hooked on Bernard <laughs> Herrmann. I know. But, but the man that did it did a lot of really movie good movie films, and it was it was really well done. Franz Waxman. Yeah, it didn't it didn't intrude into the it did it definitely added to the tension. It didn't intrude too much. Um, he did work on some Alfred Hitchcock movies though. He he worked oh, on Suspicion and Rebecca. Oh, some of the early ones. Robert Weiss probably wanted Bernard Herrmann, but he was otherwise involved with. One of Hitchcock's movies, probably. <laughs> probably. Vertigo or one of those. Yeah. Exceptionally well done movie, I thought, and I gave it an eight. Yeah, I th- I was thinking about that, too. I think it's it's not really, like, my favorite genre of film, so I, I didn't, I wasn't so much drawn into it just from the fact that it was a submarine movie, but I really liked the story of the two commanders, uh, and I thought the battle scenes were really, really well done. So I, I would give it a... Gosh, I'm wavering between a seven and an eight. I'm gonna, I'll go with an eight, just because it's, it was, it was really fun to watch, and I enjoyed it a lot, and I would probably watch it again. Particularly with the, uh, the conflict and tension between the two lead characters. I was just thinking about we gave, um, we gave the Curse of the Cat People an eight, and that's such a totally different movie than this movie, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's the beauty of his uh, career. When they talk about somebody's body of work, his was sort of the gold standard of that. Robert Weiss's gold standard. And then coming up next, it's going to be even more different with West Side Story. Oh, yeah. Right. (laughs) The man was just always in demand because people knew that if they got him as a director, he was going to give them an A-plus film. I'm super excited about seeing that. I can't believe I've never watched it before. I feel I feel like my movie watching career is not complete until I've seen this movie. I haven't watched it since it was in the theater. Wow. It's it's on television quite often, but I I just hadn't seen it. You said that it was on Turner Classic Movies right at the moment. Uh but I think about a, maybe 2 weeks ago I I just happened across it so I mm. recorded it, but it may be on their demand service. Cool. Because they'll keep those on there for a few weeks. So that's our next film. And then we uh, move to our Star, our star Trek. We break our, our uh, 1979 artificially created stop point. I thought we did that one other time, though, too. I think this is the second time we've done this. I think the earliest film we did was 1922, wasn't it, for Metropolis? Was that Something was like. that before Nosferatu? Oh no, that was maybe that's the one. I don't know. Anyway, we we cover like fifty years. If we go on long enough, we'll have to raise our 
our stop point to 1989, we can pick up a whole bunch. It, I think we want to compare those two films together. And then it sounds like we'll be able to call back to some earlier Robert Wise films as well to kind of compare some of the plot points and director decisions. Yeah, he certainly has enough of them for that. And then after we do uh, Star Trek, those two films, we have to move into a new genre or new realm. Well, I was thinking we could do some Japanese movies. Um, Oh, right, that trio of film. Yeah, the Yokai Monster Trilogy, which we could either do as kind of maybe like one episode because I think we could probably cover those in one episode. And then I thought there was another Zatoichi movie that keeps coming up as having the best filmed sword fight in history. And, wow. I, and I'm kind of like intrigued by maybe revisiting Zatoichi and, and looking at that particular film uh, that has this amazing sword fight in it. Wow, that sounds like a, a good idea. And then maybe we could move to some other foreign films from around the world and then on to Bernard Herrmann. <laughs> oh, I like that idea. Four films of Bernard Herrmann. Oh, my gosh. I would totally be down for that. So maybe we should – we'll think about it some more, but for now we'll say that we'll do the Yokai Monster Trilogy with the Zatoichi film following that and then a couple more foreign films. One of – I think there's a Donald Sutherland movie that I had sent you some pictures from. It's kind of a ghost story set in – Oh, yes. Set yes. in Italy. So maybe that might be one. I, I forget the name of it now. And then there's a French – bank robbery film that's really excellent uh, oh gosh i won't even say the name because i'll get it wrong I'll, I'll have that for the next podcast but john and i watched that about a month ago and it's excellent after about 20 minutes you don't even know they're speaking french because oh, you kind of pick up on the action it's a heist it's a bank robbery heist movie gone gone bad imagine that <laughs> yeah, that never happens. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but it's really well done. I'd never seen it. All right. Well, that's our plan. Um, and so that was our review of Run Silent, Run Deep. And coming to you from North Bend, this is Matt Johnson. And here in Los Angeles, Bob Johnson wishing all of you happy movie watching. <laughs>